I thought we'd have the great opportunity today to talk about the oral clues to systemic disease. And whether we're on the mission field or sometimes when we're in a hospital environment, the uh, physicians sort of look into the oral area and say, good gracious, what's that? Uh, and uh, if you're an oral and maxillofacial surgeon and you're, you're, they, they know you're going to be in there and around and doing rounds, the next thing you know you're in doing a consult on someone with some oral lesions or if you're on the mission field and don't have that great opportunity um, for laboratory tests and, and consults, either as a dentist or as a physician, some of these kind of things are very important for us to, to sort of look at, to discern, to see what we can, can find out uh, in, in this area. So let's, uh, let's get underway. One of the things I think that's, that's important is for us to sort of follow that same routine as we do with our regular patients often. And that is, what's the chief complaint? Why, why are you here? What is your, what's your problem? Uh, we know that on the mission field, we ask what the chief complaint is, and we hear 10 years of history and, and 50 complaints. Well, I mean today. Why did you? And, and actually, if, the, if they really told you the truth, they'd say, I'm here because I want to see some American doctors. But the, the truth of the matter is uh, often that, that they may be coming with a particular problem, and you have to sort of discern what, what is the main reason and what's the history of this problem. And, of course, if we're in a developing country or we're, we're using interpreters, it's always a challenge to try and hear the history. And because it often goes back, you know, forever. And, uh, and, and how has that history uh, developed? Well, we, we want to know a little bit about the onset. We want to know a little bit about the course of that problem. I mean, does it last months? Does it last weeks? Is it new? Is it old? Does it come back? When does it come back? Have you had previous treatment of that condition and problem? What is really the past medical history that may even relate to that problem? Exposure to pathogens, taking medications routinely, those kind of things will sort of help give us an idea. Family, social history, occupational histories are sort of very important. You know, today with the uh, uh, sort of medical record that now is typed in and and uh, available, it becomes a real challenge for us to take care of patients and at the same time take care of the record. So uh, we're fortunate on the mission field that that, that uh, takes a back seat anyhow. Um, but our examination and our history needs to, to follow that, that routine. The physical examination is also very important. I mean, the area of concern is it is it vascular? Is, is, it, is it colored? Is it elevated? What's, what's the surface look like? Where is the location of this? Palpation is very important. 
particularly with, with oral lesions? What, what is the texture? Is it the consistency? Is it, is it fluid? Is it firm? Is it, is it attached to the underlying tissue? Is it attached to the superficial tissue? You know, and so forth. Those kind of things will give us a great understanding. Percussion is, is great, and many don't use percussion with oral lesions, but it, it'll tell you a flu, whether there's a fluid in there. If you, if you percuss and move, you can feel sometimes a fluid, an abscess cavity, a cystic area. And then, of course, if we're concerned about the vascularity of the lesion, we, we want to know a little bit about, you know, listening to it. Is, are there any brewies or anything like that? And then we, I, I find it helpful in the differential diagnosis if we can sort of look at a classification of, of the lesions. I mean, does it originate in the soft tissue or does it originate in the bone? Can you, can you discern where this lesion is developing? And then what is the extent of the lesion or lesions? And do they seem to join together? Are they separate? Are they in different locations? And, and questioning the patient, when this occurs, does it occur in different locations or seem to come back in the same spot? Does it never go away? Does it go away? So the classification of the type of lesion also is helpful. I mean, what is the color of it? Is it white? Is it red? Is it blue? Is it, you know, is it pigmented? Is it exophytic, meaning is it growing out? Is it ulcerative? Uh, many of the lesions that we see in the oral environment are ulcerative. I mean, the turnover time of the mucous membrane is, is quick. It's one of the first areas that break down with uh, immunosuppression drugs and so that we, we, we see a lot of ulcerations. And now you need to be discerning about the ulcerations that you see and the things that you see, particularly even in vascular areas. So it could be that physical examination that lends a great deal, or the addition to the physical examination of radiographic exams, CT scan, MRI, sometimes nuclear medicine techniques that we do to determine if there's been uh, a, a, an infection or an inflammatory response that goes into the bone in the surrounding soft tissues. Are there high highlights that, that we need to see? What, what's going on there? And then we have found using ultrasound can be a tremendous advantage, particularly on the mission field. We did a study in Ethiopia and now often bring ultrasound with us on uh, mission trips where we cannot get radiography done. And ultrasound has been stretched to its limits so that sometimes when we're looking at a lesion that is out in the area of the parotid and we want to know, is it intrinsic to the parotid or is it cystic or is it solid? What's the, what's the deal? So, we can use ultrasound to discern whether that lesion is within the parotid capsule, in which case we probably wouldn't want to do that procedure in removal under local anesthesia. Why not? Because the facial nerve is there. And we'd numb the facial nerve, and when we're doing our dissection, uh, there's a good danger that we damage the facial nerve. If it's external 
to the parotid capsule, then, then certainly we could probably proceed with local. So some very discerning things that we can use ultrasound for. And the other thing that I always tell the residents, too, when I was working with residents, don't chase zebras. You know, if you want to be right most of the time, go with the thing that's most common. If you were in the house and you heard someone say, or you heard clip-clop, 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 you'd say, you might go to the window, you'd be expecting a horse. And most of the time, if you looked out the window, you'd see a horse. But if you saw someone, if you heard that clip-clop, clip-clop, and you saw somebody said, hey, look at that strange striped animal. Well, you might look out the window and be expecting you might see a zebra. So there are going to be some characteristics of a particular entity that are going to raise your index of suspicion and allow you to look for the zebra, the rare thing that might be out there. But other than that, look for the most common kind of thing, and you'll be right most of the time. This is not one of those. But it's one that I thought you ought to be aware of, particularly today. What do I mean by that? Here is an ulcerative, indurated lesion on the tongue. Patient says, hey, this is not painful. If you look at it, it looks like it could be a squamous cell carcinoma. If you push on it, it's, it's quite indurated, it's quite firm. Most of us, and this points out the importance of examination with gloves, this is a primary shanker of syphilis. I'd like to say that we don't see many of these anymore. Unfortunately, that's not the case. The way things are, particularly in our country, and, and these are often overlooked. They are very contagious. If you, uh, if, if you, for example, do a blood test on this patient, would you expect it to be positive or negative? It may be negative, even though there is advanced. Uh, yes, go ahead. Oh, yeah. Can we, can we do that? Thank you. I've got a helper who can do everything. I can't do anything. What do they say? The internist, he knows everything. He doesn't do anything. The surgeon, he doesn't know anything. He does everything. Okay. Now, uh, so, so this is, is basically that, that uh, lesion. The, uh, the, in, in the primary stages... Of, of syphilis, where you see the chancre, the uh, serology may be negative, and it's important to test the patient again. Dark field examination of a scraping of the lesion would be very helpful in, in your diagnosis, but you don't want to use saliva, because in saliva, there is a treponema as a normal constituent of saliva, Microdentigence, which is so, and, and many people have that. So, 
it's very important in, in the diagnosis that you sort of look at that. And I mention that because we're seeing things like that and we're seeing things like this, unfortunately. What's that? That's what they always, that's what the residents say. What's that? Uh, that is, uh, what do you think? HIV. Does that point anyone, any, any? Kaposi's. Kaposi's sarcoma. That's right. And, and basically, it, it's a pigmented lesion. It's vascular. It, it involves, often in the palate is a great area to see it. Uh, sometimes on the cheeks. Uh, it, it sometimes, believe it or not, is some of the earlier signs, other than some of the gingival signs that we'll see of someone who has HIV. So uh, I mention that because we have to be conscious of a lot of things. And we're on the mission field uh, in Africa, 20% of the population is HIV positive or so, where we're at. Now, here's an interesting entity that uh, I want to show you. people have this kind of thing. Patient may walk in and say, I, you know, I, I don't have any problem. And you look at that area and you say, oh, what's going on? Uh, notice the lacy network uh, that, that you see, uh, you know, on that, in that cheek area. Uh, here's another area. looks a little bit lacy the same way, but there also are some areas there that uh, show some almost ulcerative type changes uh, over in these, in these areas. If you look further into some patients, you'll see a, a very white sort of plaque kind of thing, which on the most part might look like what people say leukoplakia. Have you ever heard of leukoplakia? And, and that is really a bad term. I try and stay away from it. It means white plaque. So it can be in any, it can be in a lot of things. But uh, basically, leukoplakia is, uh, is, a, is a white plaque, as you see there. But the thing that is almost pathognomonic of this area is the little striae that you see coming down here. Not so much this, although that is plaque type of this particular problem. This is an example of an ulcer associated with that. And you can also see the whitened areas. You also see this area that looks very familiar to the cheek. Remember that we, that we saw earlier? Anyone know what we're looking at? Lichen planus. Okay. There, there is some areas also on the tongue. Is lichen planus a premalignant lesion? Have you ever heard of it? Lichen planus, uh, here's, a, here's an example of some disquamative gingivitis that is also lichen planus. And, and there's some areas down here on the tongue that are developing. It's very important to look at every area to see what you can see. If you look at uh, lichen planus, about 15% of the patients that have oral lesions of lichen planus will also have skin lesions. So here is a patient with skin lesions as well of, of lichen planus that are voluscious. You can see the white 
uh, striae on those lesions as well. The lesions on the legs and uh, on the skin surface are self-limiting, but the oral lesions, not so much. The, uh, it's a chronic immunologic inflammatory mucocutaneous disorder. So this, and I mentioned this early on because when I was in China, I saw two patients with ulcerative lichen planus. Extremely painful. Seven years of being extremely painful. These, these, these develop, the ulcers are are uh, extremely painful in the mouth. This patient is just <coughs> tortured by those kind of things. And with that kind of a history of severe ulcerative disease, really systemic steroids is the, is the place to begin with, with her. So, uh, but, but often in your practice, if you see those kind of uh, diseases, uh, like Lakeland Planus, Mo- and, and there's a complaint about it. If there's no complaints, don't treat it. But if there are complaints of pain and discomfort, uh, rinses with like dexamethasone elixir and, and then spitting out are, are tremendous helps in cutting down the discomfort for the ulcerative variety. And the ulcerative variety is the one that comes up to be uh, one that does predispose to the development of, of cancer long term. So these kind of people need some kind of follow-up, the ulcerative form of lichen planus. And we saw the hypertrophic form, the configurations. We saw the, the atrophic changes that occur with the erythema that surrounds it. We saw the erosive Kind that that the, the kind that are very painful, and then there are some bullous varieties. The bulli break very early. Here's another uh, entity that that looks uh, very unusual, very erythematous around the borders, pseudomembrane ulcer that that we see. The physician says, "Come in, look at this patient." You do, and as you look at that you'll notice some changes here. You'll notice some changes here in the conjunctiva of the eye. If you ask the patient, let me see your hands, you take a look at the patient's hands and you see some what we would call bullseye lesions that occur on the, on the hands. And characteristically, if we look at the patient, we'll see crusting or ulcerative lesions along the lips. The floor of the mouth is often involved, and it's erythema multiforma. Now, erythema multiforma is an interesting entity. It has skin uh, problems that you'll, you'll notice as well. It's an autoimmune acute inflammatory condition, and most frequently in children, it's, it's extremely rare in someone over 50. I mean, if you see those kind of lesions in someone over 50, start thinking about some other possibilities as well, because uh, that, that is probably not the path that you want to continue on. It's uh, a, one of those diseases that may occur once 
or it may recur, and if it recurs, it is often directly related to a herpes simplex virus sensitivity that will cause it to, to recur at, an, at another time. The triggers, again, are often drug reactions or herpes. And uh, in this particular case, I mean, there, there can be things like uh, tricyclic antidepressants. Uh, there can be antibiotics. There's a number of, of uh, medications. So a drug history is extremely important. And these oral lesions commonly appear along with the skin lesions approximately 70% of the time. I have seen patients with strictly oral lesions and, and no skin lesions. Now, what's the treatment for this? What's the treatment? It's steroids. Uh, and, and the patients may often have myalgias. They may often, they, they run a temperature. They may have some lymphadenopathy. But, but basically, it, it, they call it erythema multiforma because the various look of the ulcers and the great inflammatory response, the almost classic crusting and, and ulcers around the lips. Now, this is another one. And when you see this, this, this is a zebra for you when you see this. Why is it a zebra? It's a zebra because there, look at these ulcers, extensive ulcers in this area. But what? Where's the inflammatory response? You know what I mean? Remember when we saw erythema multiforma? Here's, here's some ulcers in the, in the lip area and adjacent pseudomembrane ulceration. But where's the inflammatory response? So that's, that is a, here's an area of ulceration of uh, and irritation, where's the inflammatory response? So that tells us something, doesn't it? If you don't see an inflammatory response, there is something that is wrong systemically. There is a problem that the patient is not responding. So we used to call it agranulocytosis, and now we call it neutropenia or granulocytopenia. But basically... It, it is a serious problem, and, and it's demonstrated itself with the reduction in the uh, blood granulocytes, which is the main body of defense in, in, the, in the body. So we're noticing that very early. Are these ulcers painful, or are you just them? They, they can be painful if they're secondarily infected, and, and that's the... the uh, the, the main problem. They get secondarily infected, and there's no body defense against the microorganisms or the fungal infection that, that can develop. So it depends on how long they have been out there, how, how uncomfortable they are, but they are definitely uncomfortable. And in spite of the fact of them being infected, you see what? No inflammatory response. So that's a, that's a real warning for you, uh, that there's been destruction or impairment of the production of excessive, even uh, splenic sequestration of these uh, neutrophils will be a, a reason. So they need a, a good workup. This is a, a serious problem. 
Now we see this young person who comes in and, and running a fever, has malaise, and then has these. But you notice in these, there's, there's what? There's a nice inflammatory response. If you look at those, the patient may not be aware, but it looks like there's a coalescence. There's a little one here. There may be a bigger one over there. They've sort of joined together. They're starting to join together. What does that tell you? Do we know what, what's going on here? Here's, a, here's someone else. Inflammatory response, ulceration. Sometimes the gingival tissue is inflamed and swollen. If you look at the patient, there may be some lymphadenopathy. We'd call it primary herpetic gingivostomatitis. Okay? Primary herpetic gingivostomatitis. And, and of course, you know, this is, uh, if, if you took a, a study of, of children five years old, 50% would be exposed to primary herpetic gingivostomatitis. But none of them, I mean, the herpes virus, but that doesn't mean that they would have exhibited this disease. Some of them never will develop this kind of a presentation. But it is a transmissible infection. Uh, you don't want uh, Johnny kissing his sister. Uh, it, is, it is a transmissible infection, and it, and it can also spread to the eyes and other parts of the body. So it is a, it, it's a concern for us. Now, What's the supportive treatment that we can give? Well, you know, a mixture of uh, Benadryl, diphenhydramine elixir, and kaopectate or, or, uh, or Malox is a great sort of mixture. It's soothing. The Benadryl is actually a, a, a little topical anesthetic for them. So, and the, and the, uh, the uh, kaopectate, is, uh, or milk of magnesia you could use, it, it helps coat the area, keep that in the area. So it helps, it makes it a little, and it's by volume, 50-50 by volume. So that's a, a nice measure. Oral analgesics are sometimes helpful. We want to make sure they don't get dehydrated, that they're getting enough fluids. And today, of course, we have a lot of things that we can use, nutritional supplements and and, uh, and, and different kinds of drinks that they would like and using a blender. But things even like ice cream are hypertonic, very painful. So you want to stay away from those hypertonic kinds of things that are going to give more pain when they take them and, and dilute them down. If you make a milkshake, you dilute it with a lot of like skim milk or something that you're 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 not you're you're not getting it quite so uncomfortable. How would you distinguish that from just a Coxsackie virus? Stomatitis? There there are Coxsackie is usually, although not always, in the pharynx and the soft palate. You can have those lesions here as well, but uh, just like uh, when we are going to talk about some parotid swellings. Uh, Viral infections are treated in, in much the same way. So from a, a, a standpoint of therapy, we probably would do about the same thing. 
Age is also a consideration with primary herpetic gingivostomatitis. And uh, the question was asked sometime about the use of acyclovar in, in those conditions. Unless the patient is immunosuppressed, a young child with leukemia or some other problem, I do not use acyclovar, any kind of uh, the viral. We'd use 200 milligrams, uh, two tablets, four times a day if, we were, if someone was immunosuppressed. But these are, if, if the child is not immunosuppressed, it's strictly supportive care that we want to do. Now, I, I, this is uh, something that th- there are many places that we, uh, or many conditions that we might see this uh, problem. This is what? It's not an ulcer. It's not in inflammation. It's petechiae. Okay? And, and it could be done, caused from trauma. It could be caused from what? What are some other things? Petechiae in the palate that could be causing. Okay? Sometimes they can be a little bit more than others. So it, it, there's, there's a difference in, in the extent of petechiae. And there's a number of disease problems that could be involved. Sometimes there is lymphadenopathy, and, and they can be in the cervical chain, uh, the sternocleidomastoid area, submandibular area, retromandibular area, uh, lymphadenopathy. Someone's chief complaint, fatigue, malaise, Right? And, and this is one of the areas often early on before the, the full-blown disease that you will see um, some problems. A, a, uh, Epstein-Barr virus is, is the main cause of, of uh, and it's a herpes simplex type 4 uh, virus, infectious mononucleosis. I think 50% of the children, again, uh, before age five, have been exposed to this. Not not all will will demonstrate that. Of, of course, that that entity. What are we concerned with? What's what's the concern with with uh, infectious mononucleosis? Well, what we're concerned with the long run is splenic rupture, because the spleen can enlarge, and and we don't want them to continue contact sports for a while. It's self-limiting. We want to be supportive in care. And it does take some weeks before we see the patient really uh, become uh, able to get back to their normal activities. Not, they, they can go back to, to school. It's, not, it's really not very contagious. Only about 5% of patients acquire uh, the Epstein-Barr virus from someone, you know, with an acute infection. But Again, the, the fever, the fatigue, the pharyngitis, the adenopathy, the splenomegaly, and sometimes some hepatic complications can be uh, uh, the, the kinds of things that we're concerned about in, in someone that demonstrates those changes. How about this young girl that comes in? She's also got the same complaint, fever, malaise, uh, achy all over, um, and uh, there's, there's a, 
a look at a young boy who, who sort of looks like that. And in the exam, you might want to examine the parotid gland, and you may look at the duct, and you might see if it's tender. You might milk it out, and you find out there is no suppuration, and you're looking at what? Mumps. And, of course, with our uh, situation now with uh, MMR, immunizations and, and all that we have, we don't see it that often. On the mission field, we might see it even more often. And, and here's a, an, an older woman uh, that, that's uncomfortable and, and has that parotid swelling. And, and if you did sort of put some pressure on the gland, she would do it herself. You would, you would see that there's a suppuration that, that comes out of the duct. So that's a, a, an infectious parotitis, which is different from a viral parotitis of, of mumps. So it's an RNA virus transmitted directly by salivary droplets. We know that the MMR vaccination, which came about in 1977, is very, very helpful. And uh, many virally induced salivary gland enlargements are present. We, we see them in people with HIV disease that have cytomegalic uh, virus. Uh, we see them uh, in many echoviruses that are non-suppurative parotid enlargements that, that occur from, from viral, viral origin. Here's someone who's had uh, numerous episodes of epistaxis as well as, uh, you know, oral uh, bleeding, bleeding around the, the gingival tissue, in the mouth, the tongue area. We can see some ichamotic areas uh, on the tongue. And, uh, and we can see that there's, you know, some clots around the, the gingival margins. There's can be petechial hemorrhages in the palate, sometimes petechial hemorrhages on the skin surface. Any ideas? Sometimes I've seen patients with large uh, petechiae and, and uh, areas on the, on the body itself. But this is a patient with idiopathic thrombocytopenic purpura, as, as we've seen. And it shows up early again with bleeding that occurs in the mouth, uh, petechial hemorrhages, gingival bleeding, and it develops from an antibody directed against the platelet antigen. And uh, it's, it, it is a serious condition, usually chronic in adults and acute and self-limiting in children. Um, but it is, it, it, it is a, of concern to us, and we need to sort of be aware when we see that kind of thing. I don't know if any of you have ever seen this kind of thing. A patient comes in and says, you know, my lip, my cheeks swell up, you know, and, and, you, and it goes away and it comes back again. And uh, sometimes they could come in and say, oh, <laughs> my, my face. And, and if you're not familiar, this is not an infection. This is not an infection. But yet, if you look at the patient, it sure favors. It looks like, well, gee, it could be an infection, an infectious process. But it's, 
angioneurotic edema is what we used to call it, or angioedema. And rapid development of this swelling is sort of almost uh, an acute anaphylactic skin reaction. And it can be a very, very serious kind of thing sometimes. It can be non-consequential in some sense, or it can be extended into the larynx and, and the airway and make it very significant. So it's what we call a, a sub-Q anaphylaxis, essentially. And, and so uh, at times we might want to treat it as such with uh, if there's some respiratory problems associated with it. We want to use epi. Um, when that condition is under control and, and the uh, airway is, is good and, and improving, uh, we then may want to give uh, some Benadryl, some steroids, and certainly administer oxygen if the patient really has a respiratory sort of problem with this. And that's our biggest concern. Uh, often it's self-limiting. Here's a, a look at what looks like that disquamate of gingivitis that we've seen before. But in other areas, there are these severe ulcerations. And so what are, what are we calling this kind of a thing? There's a pseudomembrane. It's uh, covering the, the, the tissue, which is sort of part of a bulla that has retracted. And... If we look at other areas, we can see that there's some raw ulceration that's, that's in various areas of the, of the mouth. The patient might say that this occurs for a long time. It's an intraepithelial problem. It's very, very difficult to biopsy because you need to do it sharply. There's such a thing as Nikolsky's sign. Has anyone ever heard of that? Nikolsky's sign. If you were to slap a tongue blade against the side of this patient's cheek as you were retracting or doing it roughly, you might see a bulla start to develop in that area. That, by the way, would be an excellent place to do a biopsy. Early development, you could with a, a local anesthetic and then with a, a scissors as opposed to a blade where you'd pull the epithelium off, you can actually get a great biopsy that shows the basal cell membrane here, the sank cells in the, in the middle, these desquamated cells from the epithelium, and then the, the uh, cornified area of the epithelium is right in that area. So it's a great technique from, from the standpoint of biopsy. If you can get the pathologist a, a biopsy like that, he's going to love you. But the other thing is that we often use um, direct immunofluorescence to, to look and see what disease this is. And this is pemphigus. It's a very serious disease uh, because it is potentially life-threatening. It, it can occur, uh, the, the first signs are often the oral part of the disease. There's pemphigus vulgaris, there's, uh, which is the most common, over 80% of the cases. The case that you saw with that ulceration was a pemphigus vulgaris. 
there are epithelial lesions, uh, antibiotics uh, or anti antibodies react with the dermal glycoproteins and uh, the keratocyte and just break down the adhesion in the epithelium to allow these uh, bullae to form. So these are often um, really something that's important for us. Here, here's a, a, a patient with some gingival enlargement. When you see that kind of, of gingival enlargement, you see a marked inflammatory response in the, in the papilla and sort of that band of inflammatory tissue. You might see it more regularly in certain areas here than, than others. But when you see that kind of, of, of issue, it looks like the gingival tissue have been infused, have been pressurized with a series of, of cells that have gone in there and, and, and made them uh, expand and, and be that color. There can be petechial hemorrhages or there can be even some bleeding that, that's identified. And, and that is a, a, an example of, of leukemia. We see uh, an awful lot of uh, oral changes in patients with leukemia. The, uh, the fact that the gingival tissue is infiltrated, the fact that it's done under pressure, but there is, all, there is usually always systemic signs that we're also seeing. The, the fever, cervical lymphadenopathy, uh, there's a general pallor of the of the, of the skin and mucosa as well, uh, petechiae and, and the oral infections and, and so forth, any kind of infections are rampant. We've seen patients with pericoronitis, you know, infection around a wisdom tooth that has killed them. Antibiotics will not help if there are no body defenses to come alongside of them. No matter what and how much antibiotics we've given, no matter what the surgery we've done to try and help it out. So it's extremely important that we see these situations early, that we take care of them properly. Uh, the, the oral flora in these particular cases are potentially life-threatening because the inflammatory response and the infection is, is enormous. And there are a few patients I've seen with this kind of a condition. This is about one. <laughs> and, and this is a, a patient with a very burning, painful tongue, generally depapillated, some fissuring. And the angulochylitis is, is an important part of, of, this, of this kind of picture, uh, you know, as you look at it. But it, it's a picture of iron deficiency sort of anemia uh, that, that we see. The, the tongue is depapillated, and the patient complains of, of that angulochylitis, the, the glossitis, the burning. And I must admit, although they say this is the classic appearance, I've, I have been hard-pressed to see a lot of that, uh, and, and this one patient sort of exhibited that uh, more than anything else, but it's something that we need to sort of be aware of, the oral mucosa being pale. And then it's uh, microcytic, hypochromic anemia, which is uh, 
chronic. In the male, we want to be concerned about where is he bleeding. You know, what, what, what actually is going on there? The same thing with the, the female. So the origin, this, this points up a, a, a bigger problem. There's a deficiency of iron in allowing him to retic or to build uh, the normal red blood cells. But why? Why are we in that condition? Is it a marrow problem? Is he not reticking? Is, he, is, it, is it there a more serious problem in the marrow? Or is it a, an occult uh, malignancy? that's causing gastrointestinal bleeding or ulcers or what's going on there. So that's the key behind that. I wanted to point out just quickly before we leave some of the important issues. You know, oral cancer is one of the most important identifying things that we can see. Over 40,000 people in the United States have oral cancer. There's a lot of use of snuff chewing and Tobacco chewing here in the south, uh, there's a lot of exposure to the sun, the solar radiation, and, and it can cause problems like this. This is a pre-malignant lesion. It's carcinoma in situ on the lip, and it looks, it's, it's not going away, it's not healing, and the, we, we see that and we see what is termed field cancerization. We see that, that all areas along the lip are, are getting that way. And if we let it go, there will actually be an, an overt and early carcinoma. And that's what you see sometimes, crusting and then the white plaques that are there. And we have some wonderful ways here in our country to sort of help with that. And we can use laser. We used to have to use a resurfacing technique where we cut the tissue away and then re-advance the mucosa from the inside to the outside of the lip, which, which really resurfaced sort of that, that area and, and protected it. Now with the laser, we, we go along and, and create, a, you know, the border and excise completely that entire area of the lip. And then when we do that, we just protect it with uh, bacitracin or something like that for a period of weeks. And, and uh, as we do that, no, you know, we'll slowly see the epithelialization, you know, taking place here. And then eventually it, it, it'll be completely normal. But squamous cell carcinoma is a very important thing. It's often been thought of as a disease of increasing age. They're, they're, tobacco and alcohol are still the high risk factors. We call them schminkers, smokers and drinkers. So, we, you know, they, they, and, and it's very, uh, very, very prevalent. When I see a, a carcinoma and a person that's not a smoker and a drinker, I am even more concerned because I've seen some of my most difficult cases, patients who for some reason have developed a change in the morphology, the cellular behavior in, in the, uh, in the, uh, that's caused a cancer to develop and a dysplastic changes that have occurred. But the most important factor in survival is the stage of the disease at the time we, we, we find it. And, and that, that remains very clear. We don't want to see a lesion like this. This is a squamous cell carcinoma. It's, it's, uh, it, it's, it's obvious. You can see the white part, the induration. We want you to try and find lesions like this. 
that's erythroplasia. That is a carcinoma, not carcinoma in situ. It's a cancer in that area. You have to be very astute as you look, and you have to know the risk factors, that, which are sometimes helpful for the patient. But that is a, is a lesion that deserves a, a biopsy. Sometimes we'll use in uh, supervital staining, uh, to tell if there's an area of greater nuclear activity in a place where it might be wise to do a biopsy. Uh, here's a carcinoma in the uh, uvula. And so we want to be very, very careful as we look at, at patients and, and, and look at areas that might be suspicious. Here's a squamous cell carcinoma under the tongue a rolled indurated border. And if we look here, here's a squamous cell carcinoma over on the lateral border of the tongue. And it looks a little bit almost like the what? Like in planus, you know, with the little striae sort of developing, but there's a, a, a hyperkeratotic kind of leukoplakia that's pre-malignant and with malignant changes. So it's so important. These areas that we see, here's ulceration, induration, a carcinoma in situ in the retromolar trigone. Uh, here's a carcinoma in situ on the, on the ridge under a, a prosthesis. And you might think it's denture irritation or something. It's not. It's a, it's, a, it's a cancer. So be alert. Here's a carcinoma in a recent extraction site of where a tooth has been removed, and it's a, it, it, it's a carcinoma. So be conscious of that. One of the greatest things we can do is to have a high index of suspicion when we see an interrated red lesion, erythematous sort of borders and, and, uh, and so forth. Here's one on the floor of the mouth. Uh, and, and one that people would say, oh, well, it's denture irritation. Take your denture out or something. Let's, let's, uh, let's be really conscious of the induration and the problems. We don't want to see the patient come in with such regional lymphadenopathy as this because our chances of survival with this kind of uh, advanced disease is, is very, very, very slim. So our goal is to give them that cup of cool water to allow them to know Jesus and him alone. And so in the process of all we're doing, we're looking at all these oral lesions, looking at uh, what are the systemic manifestations. But you know behind all that is the patient. Does the patient know Jesus. Where are they? We have something to offer that all the humanitarian efforts cannot begin to offer. In the sickest of patients that I have seen in the hospital that are dying with metastatic disease, no one has said, I wish I had been at the office and worked harder. Many are looking at the end of their life. And many physicians will say, well, just, you know, I, I feel so helpless. I feel so hopeless. 
But those physicians who know the Lord realize that this for that patient, that we were created for eternity. And for that patient, this could be the beginning, just like the thief on the cross who came at the very end. We have something to offer. Heaven's doors are open and there's room for you. There's an opportunity for life, for love, and it can begin today. So don't forget that sharing the love, the compassion of Christ with the patient is so important, particularly when we're talking about some of these disease processes, which are not going to be no fun in therapy or in care. If they have someone who will see them, be with them through their entire treatment, and be able to show them Jesus. That's a blessing. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your blessings and for your grace. Thank you for allowing us the wisdom and the discernment that comes from your very heart to not only discern oral disease and the systemic manifestations, but even more importantly, the spiritual condition of the patient. Give us wisdom as we care for them. Give us the fruit of the Spirit as we deal with their difficult conditions, the love, the joy, the peace, the kindness, the long-suffering, the patience. And Lord, in the process, May we be a blessing to you. For we ask it in the name of Jesus, for the sake of our patience, and for the glory of God. Amen. I, I know we're getting late, and we've got a late start. If there's any questions, I'll be around and happy to talk with anybody.